I was a high school senior when I quietly began telling a few people I was an agnostic. In retrospect, I don't really know whether this was true or not. But in any case, for a while I needed to challenge the religious precepts I had grown up with. Actually, there is no such thing as a hand-me-down religion. Either we claim it for ourselves or we don't have it. In part, I suppose I was disturbed by the supposed facts of the biblical stories. Many didn't seem plausible. Yet they didn't seem exactly false either. Still, I was full of my own fanciful powers as I bounded out to college and life beyond. Some people, some people can stay away from a religious or focused spiritual quest for a very long time, maybe even a lifetime. Others of us can't. Probably most of us, really. Because ultimately we find we're unable to escape the deep questions of our existence. Even if it's only at the end of life they come crashing in on us. And these ultimate questions are both philosophical and theological. How we answer them have practical and ethical ramifications for the living of our days. The first question is, who am I? which is a question about identity, our fundamental identity. The second follows along. Where do I come from? What are my origins? And the next, where am I going? Addresses our purpose and our destiny. And then somewhere in the mix lies this one. Who or what is God? Which is a bit subtler but no less substantial because it addresses who or what will have our ultimate allegiance and loyalty. And you all know we can say one thing, but demonstrate quite another in the content and character of our lives. Whenever we begin to sincerely engage these elemental questions, we begin our spiritual pilgrimage. For most of us, this pilgrimage is full of starts and stops and U-turns and breakdowns. Still, surely everyone here this morning is somewhere on that path. I mean, your presence gives you away. Well, you know, it didn't take me all that long, really, to find my way into my own faith as a follower after the way of Jesus. And though it may not sound logical to you, that's because I first fell in love with music. And as I discovered, the great music of the Western world is profoundly spiritual. It evokes a reality that is quite beyond material skepticism. This reality does not fall within the bounds of scientific proofs, even though music obeys the natural laws of physics. The results are not quantifiable. When you were moved to applaud after the choir just finished, 
it was because of a transcendent experience, not because of a biological one. It was through music that God initially became truly known to me. It took me out of my skin, as it were. I had a faith without words per se. Following the death of the novelist Kurt Vonnegut, I read that he had suggested his own epitaph in an interview he gave a year earlier. Vonnegut said, My epitaph should be, The only proof he needed of the existence of God was music. And then he added this, It's meant a tremendous amount to me. I'm grateful, I'm really grateful for what music has done for me. Why it works, I can't imagine. Well, that's completely consistent with my own experience. I don't understand why it works the way it does either. But the language of music pointed me to God like a compass pointing to true north. Now, of course, everyone has, has their own unique tale to share concerning how they got started on the Godward path, and it runs the gamut. Not everyone certainly responds to music the way I do, but it still has been the language of my soul. I would call it my soul language. Of course, each of you has your own story about how you moved along the spiritual path, how you got to where you are today, such as it is. In the first year of my ministry, I was probably 28 years old, a woman about the age I now am today told me a part of her life story. She had a successful career in finance and had been married and the mother of three which were all lost to her through the denial of her alcoholism. But now many years later in recovery, she told me, recovery for decades, she found herself reporting in AA meetings that she was glad she was an alcoholic. For through it, she found out who God was and by default who she was. By that, she didn't mean she was glad she lost her career and caused her family great pain. That wasn't what she was saying. But she was very glad that through her disease she was able to find answers to her own four essential life questions. Who she was, where she was from, where she was going, and what she would give her ultimate allegiance to. At that early stage in my own career, she was my teacher on that point. Through all sorts of means, skepticism gives way to acceptance that, after all, religious or spiritual commitment may be the appropriate, even necessary, response to life's questions. Many discover that it isn't enough to simply acknowledge the possibility of God's existence, but that's the barest of acknowledgments because that's the barest of acknowledgments and doesn't long satisfy our deepest yearning. But you know, friends, at the end of the day, it matters quite a lot how we think about these things. I have an old volume written by Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was the minister for whom the Riverside Church was built 
in the first half of the last century up near Columbia. I was flipping through it this week again, and I came across a a piece that he wrote about an important scientist philosopher of his day, a man named Ernst Haeckel. Here's what Fosdick was saying. Haeckel says that there is no God, only mobile cosmic ether. Imagine a group under Haeckel's leadership rising to pray, O mobile cosmic ether, blessed be thy name. It is absurd. Unless God is personal, the deepest meanings of gratitude in human hearts for life and its benedictions have no proper place in the universe. Now, Fosdick wrote that in 1917. And Haeckel died in 1919. But here's the thing. Haeckel's philosophical framework, in which all economics, politics, and ethics are reduced to applied biology, was embraced by the Nazis to affirm their positions on racism, nationalism, and social Darwinism. And I say, notwithstanding our culture's growing spiritual laziness, it really does matter how we answer these four fundamental questions. Our answers have real-time implications. Claiming something like mobile cosmic ether or an indifferent biological emergence as the fundamental truth allowed for stridently misguided answers to the big questions of our existence prior to World War II. Now in here, we speak of a radically personal God. That's, if you will, the music we make in here. Rich, compelling stories of faith have been passed down to us, stories evocative of both history and mythology, Stories rooted in facts, but imbued with language of transcendence and the imagination. Stories which, if read scientifically, strain credulity. But then again, if heard like music, can awaken our hearts and minds to the realization that the most important matters of our existence lie just beyond our ability to fully explain or quantify. We move into the realm of faith. And faith is not illogical or irrational. Instead, it is transrational, a larger frame of reference. Faith is willingness to embrace a truth that's larger than our language can hold. So today we read those wildly mystical stories about Jesus' ascension, which is a story of faith. It concludes the remarkable events that began with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a story of faith because the disciples' experience could not be contained in the language of material fact. Well, how do you talk about something that is real for you, but beyond your understanding? How do you do that? The New Testament text is in part the result of people struggling to make sense of what they experienced as profoundly real. And what is it that they're explaining today? Luke and Acts were written some 30 years or so after the resurrection, time that had allowed the 
fledgling church to form and propagate time enough for thoughtful reflection about the shared experiences of those who knew and were coming to know Jesus. The barest facts were a given. Jesus was a powerful, charismatic teacher and healer. He was crucified as an enemy of the state. His presence was experienced by many beyond the grave. His promise of spiritual empowerment was kept. The church was born, and the eternal message concerning God's love for humanity and all of creation caught hold around the known world. That's what we were singing about earlier. That's what the choir was singing. As the story unfolds then, the ascension is the transition from the specifics concerning Jesus to the specifics concerning the birth of the church and the spreading of the message of God's kingdom come to earth, built from the timber of love and justice. So long as Jesus was around, you know, the message couldn't be larger than his circle of friends. His leave-taking, as it were, allowed humanity to assume its proper role, to become co-workers with God, to become actors on the stage rather than spectators in the audience. And that invitation, friends, is planted in the heart of all things and comes to every generation. Now Luke colorfully put it this way. While Jesus was going and the disciples were gazing up toward heaven, because after all, the ancient cosmology was three tiers, heaven, earth, hell, underworld, The disciples were gazing up toward heaven. Two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? And they say that because the dawning of the disciples' spiritual maturity had arrived, and it was time to get on with the work that had been gifted to them. No more gawking, hemming, and hawing. No more looking up into heaven. Time to get on with the work of God's love for the world. It was now up to them. In the ascension, we have the exaltation of all that Jesus taught and lived. The triumph of love over death. Resident with God means that each and every human life is included within the same victory. No one excluded. And so for generation after generation, person after person, heard the invitation to join the love parade. Here's another testimony from the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. He wrote, Five years ago, I came to believe in Christ's teaching and all my life suddenly changed. I ceased to desire what I had previously desired and began to desire what I formerly did not want. It happened to me as it happens to a man who goes out on some business and on the way suddenly decides that the business is unnecessary and returns home. His former wish to get as far as possible from home has changed into a wish to be as near as possible to it. Suddenly I heard the words of Christ and understood them, and I experienced the joy of life undisturbed by death. You know, friends, what I always find so stunning in the Easter season is how this ragtag 
cowardly band of disciples are transformed into persons of remarkable strength and conviction concerning a message about love. It never ceases to amaze and surprise me how that happens. This is evidence of faith. Faith that came as a gift and they took it on. Their assignment became very clear. They knew who they were. They knew where they were from. They knew where they were going. And they had given their allegiance to the God of love. It's an incredible story, I think. It's our story. It's our music, our poetry, if you will. And you know what? This story becomes brand spanking new whenever people dare to respond in faith. People, I would add, just like us. Just like us. 